0: Um, this past week I received an email and this email was from my cell phone provider and they were informing me that they had a new customer agreement for me that they had made especially for me to define the terms of our relationship. So I clicked on the link to read and discover what it is that our relationship is going to be defined by and I discovered 53 pages. Of rules for my cell service. 53 pages. I did not print them, and I did not read and study these rules like I do scripture, just for your information. However, I did think, as I was reading, skimming the rules, um, this brought to my mind a truth that we all do really know and understand, and that is that rules are not actually in opposition to relationship. Rules define how we live within a relationship. So whether it be a consumer situation, like what I have with my cell phone service or a store, um, a banking relationship, a relationship with our government and our community, whether it be parenting relationship. Marriage relationship, there are rules, there are boundaries, there are guidelines that define that relationship and how we function towards each other and how we can best flourish. And so it is with God. God's rules are not in opposition to our relationship with him. Rather, they define how we relate to him. God initiated relationship with Israel called a covenant. And the law, which are the statutes and rules, are the stipulations that define the terms of that covenant relationship. So today, we are turning our attention to this covenant and to the rules and the stipulations and specifically the Ten Commandments. In Hebrew, the Ten Commandments literally is translated the Ten Words. The Greek translates it as Decalogue. So we are there. you'll hear those words, those terms, those phrases used interchangeably to talk about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words were the very words of God that he spoke out of the fire on Mount Horeb to the people. They are the very words that the Israelites heard when they heard the voice of God. So let's just take a moment, and I'm going to read the ten words to you. And may we hear, as I read, the voice of God speaking from the fire of his word. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And you shall not steal. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These ten words were the very words that God Himself etched into stone. Two tablets of stone containing the words of God, one tablet for each party, one tablet for God, and one tablet for the people. So what, in these next few minutes, what can we learn about just the ten words based upon the fact that God spoke them and based upon the fact that he wrote them in tablets of stone? Well, one of the things we can learn is that they are transcendent. They came from God himself, who is himself transcendent. He is the creator of all things. And because of this, his words transcend time and space, transcend all of creation. They are themselves a revelation of who God is. We cannot separate the words of God from himself, from who he is. They reveal to us... His character, Dennis Kinlaw says, when God spoke from Sinai and gave the Israelites the law, he was not presenting them with rules to be followed. He was revealing his character, his nature, and his will for them. They are a revelation of who God is. They are also permanent. They're etched in stone. For God is the unchanging God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Etched in stone denotes a permanency that is confirmed by the rest of Scripture. Jesus himself speaks of the permanency of the law when he said that he did not come to abolish it. We also observe, as we look closely at the ten words, that they can be divided into two sections. Sometimes people refer to them as the two tables of the law two sections. Um, the first four commands, which we're looking at today, define the relationship with God. They're all directed toward God. Next week, we will be looking at the second half of the law, the second sixth command, divine relationship with one another, how we are to relate to each other. And we can also observe that these commandments, these ten words, are words of love. Jesus summarizes the law in this way in Matthew 22, when a lawyer came to him to question him and to test him, and he asked him, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds to him, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. All of those four commandments that we're looking at today are how we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it, he says You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the other six talk about how we are to love our neighbor. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. God's law is truly the law of love, for it is initiated to us in God's love, and it calls his people to love him in return. These ten words also are a summary of the entire law. In Deuteronomy 4:44 where we start our text today it begins the longest section of the book of Deuteronomy all the way through chapter 26 are all the stipulations of the covenant but what we need to understand is all of those individual stipulations will fit themselves nice and neatly into one of these two categories love God or love others and it's done so in their cultural context but the principle the foundation that is eternal is those two categories of loving God and loving neighbor. Many people today are very confused about what we are supposed to do with the law. There are so many questions out there. What does the law mean to us today as New Testament believer? I was doing a quick Google search on the law and up popped a, an article that says, Christians do not need to obey the 10 commandments. And I thought to myself, Really? Like, what are you saying exactly? Are you saying that we can just go out and murder people or steal or whatever? Like, that just doesn't even logically make sense. But there is a lot of confusion about the law that is in Scripture, about the Ten Commandments. And it is my hope and prayer that we will walk away from our study tonight, next week, and throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy we will walk away with a better understanding of what the law means to us today in 2022 in light of who Jesus is. A couple of things to note about the law and Jesus is Jesus' relationship with the law. He did not come to abolish the law. We've already stated that it's eternal because it reflects the good character of God. Rather, he said he did come to fulfill it, and he does this in two ways. One, he fulfills it by his obedience, by walking in accordance with the law, and he does so perfectly. He is also the fulfillment of what the law was and is pointing to. So he fulfills it both by his obedience and by his person. And Jesus, in so doing, he transforms for us our relationship with the law. Listen to what John, the apostle, wrote in his letter to the, um, 1 John 2, 7 through 8. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. You remember John's, commandment, John's letter or his epistle was all about loving God and loving neighbor, just like he was taught by Jesus. So he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus, when he came, transformed the law. He did not bring us a new law. It's the old law made new. He transforms it. So as we take a deep dive into the 10 words over this week and next week, this is what our approach will be. We will seek to understand the law itself and what it means. We will seek to understand how Jesus fulfills fulfills it and seek to understand how he deepens and transforms it for us today. So that's a huge task. So let's ask our Heavenly Father to help us with this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your law and for your covenant. And we thank you for Jesus who transforms the law for us today. And Lord, as we head into your scriptures, reading your word, help us to to have an understanding heart. I pray that we would be open to receive your word. I pray that we would be able to see and understand what it is that you um, intended to reveal and what it is your will for us in your law and help us to understand that in light of jesus and lord i pray for your blessing on our time together i ask for clarity of thought and speech as i go forward and i pray this in jesus name amen all right we are in deuteronomy four we're going to start there This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land, in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived in the east beyond the Jordan from Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. So once again, we have an insert by an editor later in history who wants to remind the readers and transition the readers of this book away from the historic prologue, which we've been looking at in chapters 1 through 4, and turning their attention toward the stipulations of the law, towards the covenant, towards the big section of this book, And he does that by reminding us of the context. He reminds us of who the generation is that is receiving this, where they're sitting. He reminds that God had already begun to be faithful to his word to them by giving them a a, a part of their inheritance already. And they were literally in that land. They were in the part of their inheritance, the land that they had victory over against Og and Sihon. And so he brings us back and, and transitions us to um, remind us once again of the context of where we're at in the story. And then he continues on, and then Moses summoned all Israel. Chapter 5, verse 1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, let me stop there, all of Israel, not just some of Israel. He summoned everybody. That's every man, woman, and child. Anybody who was a part of Israel. They didn't have a separate section for the children. All of them were gathered together to hear the words of the Lord, because the words of the Lord apply to all of Israel. So he summons all of Israel and he says to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. That phrase, hear, O Israel, is a phrase that is repeated several times throughout Deuteronomy. It's it's an attention grabber. It's kind of like it made me think of when you're a mom of littles and you grab your child by their little face and their little chin and and, and kind of direct their face towards you and say, hear me. Do you hear me? Listen to my words. I used to say that to my kids all the time. Listen to mommy's words. <laughs> hear me speak to you. This is God grabbing their attention and saying, listen to my words. Hear my words. Now, hearing is a theme that you see throughout all of scripture. You're going you're gonna to hear phrases like, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In Revelations, Jesus says to the churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. At the end of Revelation, it says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in this book. Hearing in Scripture is not just about a sound that goes into your ears. It is not about voices going in one ear and out the other. Hearing in Scripture involves learning and being careful to do what God is saying. True biblical hearing is defined by obedience. And he says that in this passage. He says, learn, learn the covenants, learn the stipulations, the rules. This is studying them. Don't just hear it. If I hear something, it just goes, it really does. It'll be, it'll be gone in five minutes if I don't study it. It's gone. I was reading a book. My husband was actually reading the book to me, and that was like a couple months ago. And so I picked it up. We hadn't finished it yet, and I picked it up, and I started it over again. And I, it was like I had never heard this in my life, like <laughs> never. And I know he rem- I I remember him reading it to me, but I remember nothing nothing about what was in that book because I was just hearing it. I wasn't studying it. I wasn't learning it. If we just hear something, it will be gone in a moment. But God knows that about us and he says, don't just hear it. I want you to study it. I want you to understand what is inside and outside and underneath all of these commandments. I want you to study to understand what these commandments are revealing about me and who I am. So we're being called to study them because studying them will put them more deeply into our heart and into our soul. But not just that, we're to do them. Be careful to do them because that is one way of etching it into our souls and our minds is by being obedient to them. So he says, you shall hear... But you shall learn and be careful to do them. Verse 2 says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. This is reminding them that this is the same covenant that God had given to them at the mountain. This is not a new covenant. The covenant that he gave to their parents is the covenant that they're hearing today. Verse 3 says, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. So he's, he's talking about this covenant. He says, not with your fathers did I make this covenant, but with you. And you were there face to face. And we talked a little bit about that last week. God is not saying or Moses is not saying that God did not make this covenant with their parents, with the previous generation. But rather he's trying to make the point that the, con- the covenant is a continuation to this generation, to those of you who are alive today. It's as if you were there at the mountain face to face. As if you too were there. When the fire of God spoke, when I, the Moses, the medi- mediated for you because you were so afraid that you would be destroyed. There's a continuation of the covenant. It doesn't stop with just that generation. It applied to them today. And I thought as I was reading through this, how every generation of Israelites, when they would read this out of scripture, it was saying, for you who are alive today... For hundreds of years they would read those words and it would say the same thing as it does to the second generation. It would say that this covenant is the covenant God made with you at Horeb. You were face to face with him. The covenant that God made passed from generation to generation. It was consistent. Let's move on. He said, verse 6, I I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Right away, before he gets into anything, God reveals himself to his people. God is constantly revealing himself. He's revealing himself as the king who is seeking and initiating a covenant with this people the great king, and he reveals his name to them. I am the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh is his most personal, covenantal name, and it means that he is present, that he is accessible, and he is near to those who call on him. I am Yahweh, your God, Elohim, Elohim is the name for God, creator. He is their creator. He reveals himself not just as the personal God, but their creator God, one who is full of power and might. And he is their God. Do you hear the intimacy in this covenant relationship? He is a God who is near. He is their personal God. He will be with his people and they will be with him. There's this intimacy that he is revealing to them. In this sentence, I am the Lord your God, and not only that, but I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments and the law are founded upon redemption, upon grace. They follow grace. It's so important for us to understand this. God did not say to Israel while they were in the house of slavery, here is my law. Here are my commandments. You do them, and I'll set you free. You do them, and you can have a relationship with me. You do them, and I'll be blessed. He did not say that. He redeemed them. He saved them of his own initiation, out of his own love for them. He redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt by the blood of a lamb. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. He led them to the mountain where he would enter into relationship and covenant with them. And only then did he give them the commandments. It is so important for us to understand that the commandments have not been given for them to earn anything. They already have everything. The commandments are simply a response to all that God had done for them, a response to his initiating love. And ladies, this is what makes biblical faith different from every religion in the world. This is not like any religion. All religions teach that you have to do in order to receive from God. You have to say your prayers. You have to go to confession. You have to do any sorts of rules or legalities in order for God to love you and to bless you and to do for you. But Christianity, the Bible, teaches the complete and utter opposite. God blesses us and we respond to that relationship in love to him. It's important that we see that in this context. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He freed them from slavery in Egypt. Notice how he's bringing them out of slavery, but he's not leading them into a new kind of slavery. He's giving them laws, but the laws are leading them to freedom. James tells us that the law is the law of liberty. God is a good God, and his commandments are his blessing. We have seen that from Genesis all the way through to this point. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 teach us repeatedly that God's commands are his blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he said in Genesis 1 and 2. That was his command, and that was his blessing. He puts them in the garden, and he says, work the garden, keep the garden. Eat of every tree that you can except for this one. And he blessed what they did. His commandments are his blessing. His commandments are his life. So the commandments are not a new form of slavery. They're not leaving one house of slavery and entering into another house. God is inviting them into liberty. Let's continue on. So in light of who God is, in light of what he has done in redeeming them and saving them and covenanting with them, verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Why would you want to have any other god but God in light of who he has revealed himself to be, in light of all that he has done? This one command is the command that rests underneath All of the other commands and stipulations, this is the foundational command. If we break this command, we will have broken all the rest of them. If we break one of the one another commands, it's because we have already in our hearts broken this one. We have displaced God in our hearts as our God and put something else in there. Most of the time, when we have broken this command, it's because we put ourselves in the place of God. Our wants, our desires take precedence over God's word. God is calling us to have no other gods before him. He's calling us to an exclusive relationship with him. He's calling us to worship and love and obey him and him alone and as he has revealed himself to be in scripture the essence of idolatry starts with denying the truth about god and exchanging it for a lie we can deny or suppress the truth about his existence we can deny or suppress truth about his character and his nature we can begin to distort him how he has revealed himself in his word denying And exchanging it for a lie. And this is what leads us to worship the creature rather than the creator. We love God by worshiping him in truth. We worship him in truth by remaining and holding fast to his word. Now the second commandment that we see in verse 8 is basically just a continuation of the first commandment. The second commandment prohibits making false images. Verse 8 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or to serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we talked about this a lot last week, but this is repeated over and over in Deuteronomy, and it is repeated over and over in Scripture, this idea of idolatry and its many forms, whether that form be in worshiping another god or whether we take the worship of the true god of the Bible and we worship him wrongly. That's what the second commandment is prohibiting. It's prohibiting the worship of Yahweh, the true god, the only god, but worshiping him in either the ways of the culture that is surrounding them Or worshiping him by making a form of him. Filling in the formlessness of who he is. See, God had revealed himself without form. We saw that last week. They saw no form. And the temptation then is to fill in the gaps. There's always that temptation to fill in the gaps and fill in the questions with our own ideas. And every single time that is done, we diminish God into something that he is not. And so the second commandment is prohibiting worshiping God by filling in the form of Yahweh or by worshiping him in such a way that the people of the land are doing, um, worshiping their gods. So for Israel, Israel had been redeemed out of a land of Egypt, saturated in the worship of the multiplicity of gods. There were tons of God. That's what they knew. That, That was the water that they swam in idolatry and god was bringing him into a new land but that new land was exactly like the old land in that both lands were saturated in false idolatry and so they were being tempted they would be tempted to be drawn into the worship of yahweh the true god in the way of the land they would be pressured by the people that lived in that land and god is saying i am not like those god's Those gods are really no gods at all. I am not like them. Do not worship me the way that they are worshiping their gods. Unless we would think that we would never do this, we are really, as a people, no different from Israel. Because we too live in a worshiping culture. We live in a culture that is saturated with idolatry. It doesn't have little statues necessarily. But there is. we are people, as people we are, made to worship something. And if we do not worship the one true God, we will worship something else. Every time, hands down. And so we live in a culture saturated with idolatry. And we are being pressured, even today to worship the God of the Bible in the way that is acceptable to our co- culture. They have no problem with us worshiping God as long it doesn't bring, bring any condemnation on their lifestyle. So as long as we leave God in our homes and not bring him to the office with us or bring him to the public square, we can... Do break this commandment today by denying what God's word says about judgment and salvation and just preach a gospel that love wins. Breaking this law, the commandment tells us, etched in stone, look at verses eight and nine, is hatred of God. When we choose to worship another God, or worship God in the way that is not in truth the commandments tell us that this is hatred of God it's a, there's no in between in this you either love God or you hate God he says you shall um, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third to the fourth and on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me Now, he's not saying that he's bringing condemnation on people's children for their sin. But what he's saying is there's a legacy that is passed down from generation to generation of those who hate me. That legacy that you're passing is hatred of God. But also, don't miss the fact that it says that those who show steadfast love, those who love him by honoring him and keeping his commandments he will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments so the generational the passing down generation to generation can go in two different directions we can pass down our apathy or our hatred or we can pass down our love for God in a couple of weeks we're going to be looking at the Shema and one of the big things about the Shema is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and teach that to your children so there's a generational piece to this that should make us think soberly about how we are interacting and how, what our perspective is on God and how we are worshiping God. Are we worshiping him alone or are we worshiping him in the way our culture would be pleased with rather than pleasing God? Now, Jesus, when he entered into our world, when he took on flesh, he too entered a land filled with idolatry. There was Roman idolatry that was pervasive and as perverted as ours is today. There was Jewish idolatry, which took their traditions and held them over God's word. But he never once wavered, did he? Never once did he waver in his love for God and his obedience to God. He never once worshipped anybody but his father. And even when he was personally attacked by Satan, he responded with the words of scripture that say, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus fulfilled the law by being careful to love and worship God and obey God alone every single minute of his life, from his birth all the way up to the cross. But he also fulfilled the law because he is God. He's God in the flesh. His entire earthly ministry, he made this claim with his words, and he validated this claim with his actions. He showed that he was and is the great I Am, Yahweh, the one who appeared to Moses in the wilderness, Yahweh, the one who appeared on Mount Horeb, He showed that he was and is by making seven I am statements in the book of John. And his miraculous works showed that he is the great God, the great I am. He calmed storms. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. He showed that he was and is the great I am, even when demons, when the demons and Satan left his presence because he just spoke the word go. That's all he had to do say go and they went jesus himself is the fulfillment of the second commandment for he is why they were not to fill in the form because god himself would fill in the form with his son the lord jesus he alone is the image of the invisible god the exact imprint of his nature And Jesus fulfills these two commandments and he transforms them for us. So that we are able to keep these commandments when we worship Jesus as God. And we worship him by loving him and obeying him and serving him in truth. Let's continue on. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord your, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now every time I hear this commandment, I think, aha, this is what I can do. This is what I can do. I will not take Jesus' name in vain ever. I will not say his word as a swear word or anything like that. Because that's how it was taught to me as a child. I thought that was the only thing that this commandment was talking about. Oh, was I wrong? Oh, my goodness, was I wrong? This command is so much more than that. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the name of a god was considered to contain implicit power. In that cultural context that Israel is living in, they would call on the name of their deity to give magic power for their own personal gain and advantage. So they would call on the name of their god so they could curse somebody or, bless, or get blessing for themselves or to get wealthy or to get power. And God is saying, and this really is, if you can see it, a continuation of commandment number two. You will not worship me in the way of the other idolaters that are around you. You will not do to my name what they are doing to the names of their gods. You will not use my name as a power tool in your belt as a way of getting personal gain. You will not use my name as if I were some sort of divine bellhop there at your disposal. Why? Why? What's in a name? Because of God's name. God's name is his revelation of himself. You cannot separate his name from his person. His name reveals his character and, his, and all of his traits. Listen to some of the names of God that we have in the Old Testament. We've already talked about Yahweh Elohim. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the mighty one of Jacob. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. Do you hear how God is revealing himself through his name? Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our banner. Yahweh Mkadesh, the Lord who sanctifies, who makes holy. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace. Yahweh Sifkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord our shepherd. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. El Elyon, the Lord most high. El Roy the god of seeing god reveals himself in his names his character and his nature and we cannot separate his name from who he is and because of who god is his name is to be revered not treated as profane not treated as vanity or as worthless that's what it means to treat his name in vain to treat him as worthless It's to not show due reverence to his name. Not only that, but scripture teaches us that God put his name on Israel. Number 627 says, you shall put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. As God put his name on this people, he's saying, I will dwell in their midst. This people are my redeemed people. They are set apart as holy. But just like in the Old Testament, God has put his name on New Testament believers as well. When we are baptized after receiving Christ as our Savior, what are we baptized into? Into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He puts his name on us And so to take his name in vain would also be to live in such a way that does not reflect his name. Since his name is on his people, to pursue other gods, idolatry is to live in opposition to God's righteous commands, to speak irreverently, to break promises, to misuse his word, to twist it and distort it, are all ways that his name is taken in vain. It says that God will not hold him guiltless. There is judgment embedded within the stone of these ten words for not reverencing the name of the Lord, for speaking and living in such a way that diminishes the name of our God. And this should sober us. For if we take an honest look at the significance of this command, we can honestly recognize that we have treated the name of God as worthless. And we are guilty, deserving the judgment of God. But Jesus is the fulfillment of this command. He showed great reverence for God's name in how he spoke and how he lived. His obedience to the will of his Father showed his reverence to the Father's name. And he lived his life to glorify his Father. And he taught his disciples to do the same. In teaching them to pray, Jesus said that we should pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, be your name. Hear the reverence. God is our Father. Yes, through Jesus we have this personal, intimate relationship with the Father, but he is also our Father who is in heaven. He is high and lifted up, holy and exalt the exalted one. He is God in heaven and is to be revered as such. Hallowed or holy is your name. We don't give his name reverence it is to be revered it is we just follow into it his name is holy live and speak in such a way that reflects that but jesus not only fulfills it in that he did it but he claims to be the name of god he claims the very name of god every name of god that we read in the old testament is fulfilled in the person of jesus He is Yahweh, the self-existing one. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Elohim, creator God, mighty and strong. He is the Lord who heals, the Lord who provides. He is God Almighty, the mighty one of Jacob. He is the Lord, our banner, the Lord who sanctified, the Lord who saves. He is the Lord, our righteousness, the Lord, our shepherd, the Lord of hosts. He is the God who sees. He is the God who hears. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of of Lords, and at His name, at the name of Jesus, all reverence is due. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will someday bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus deepens and transforms this law for us today, and we will be careful to do this command as we by faith live our lives revering Jesus as Lord. That word Lord has meaning. It's not just a word we say. It means that he is the high king of heaven. It means that he is the sovereign one. It means that we submit ourselves under his authority and under his word. And we keep this commandment when we revere him as Lord. And confess him as Lord and live according to his word. And last but certainly not least is the command that we love and obey God by observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Let's pick up our text in verse 12. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, in light of that, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Sabbath, it's the Hebrew word sabbat, which literally means to rest, to cease. And we first see this word used in the creation narrative back in Genesis 2. Sabbath is rooted in creation. Genesis 2, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ceased or finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God, sabbat, he rested from all his work that he had done in creation God rested. He blessed the day in which he rested. Do you hear, once again, the echoes of the truth that God's commands are his blessing? God did not rest because he was tired. He ceased working, and he set this pattern, this principle, in place, in creation, for his people as a blessing. Of all the commandments, this one stands out as a gift, Etched in stone is the gift commanding rest. I have no idea why we would be offended by this. (laughs) Why would this be problematic for us? But it is, is it not? I'm terrible at Sabbath resting. I'm terrible at it. I have, um, because I work at a church, Sundays tend to be a work day, so it's really not a Sabbath day for me. So I try to take a sabbath in the week on a friday so this past friday on my sabbath day i worked studying for bible study because i wasn't finished yet i'm terrible at this and yet this is intended to be a gift it's a gift because slaves don't get days off he redeemed them out of the house of slavery slaves didn't get days off Pharaoh was an exacting taskmaster. He, you can be sure, did not give Israel any time to rest. In fact, the opposite was true. He kept heaping burdens on them over and over and over again. He took away the tools that they had to even produce what he was telling them to do. He took away the straw and all the things that they needed to make the bricks, and then he kept making it that they had to make more and more and more, and yet they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. It was an impossible situation for them. He was cruel, and the people worked endlessly and never made progress. They never ceased in their labor. There was no sabbath for them in the house of slavery. But Yahweh, in his command, his saying, I am not like Pharaoh. I am in no way like Pharaoh my commands are good my commands are a blessing and one of the first things he does is to tell them i want you to work hard for six days but work but i want you to take the the seventh day as a day for me and spend the day with me take that seventh day off cease from your labor labor and fellowship with me it was as if the king was inviting his subjects every single week into his palace to dine in his presence, this is what the Sabbath means. Cease from your labors and spend time with the one who redeemed you. Cease from your labors and learn the truth that it is God who is providing for you. You are not providing for you. God is providing for you sabbath is an opportunity to trust in the provision of god that's the part i'm not very good at cease from your labors and know that he is god and you are not see we think we carry the world on our shoulders we think we are ultimately responsible for how everything turns out but it's god And Sabbath is an opportunity to learn to trust in him, to learn to lay down the idolatry that's in our heart as if we are God, and to submit ourselves once more to the God that is. Somehow, though, this beautiful blessed commandment can be turned into another house of slavery. We can do it today by adding to what the word of God says, by adding to the commands of God, to make them say what it doesn't actually say. This is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. They had taken this commandment and they had added heavy burdens on the people so that Sabbath was once again a house of slavery. You can only walk this far on the the Sabbath day. You cannot carry your mat. You cannot glean if you walk by a field. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot, you must not, you do not. And it was, became not this beautiful picture of fellowship with God and learning to sit at his table and feast and find healing and joy and abundance in him and in his presence, remembering all that he is and all that he has done, but it became nothing but a burden. It was another house of slavery. So when Jesus came into this situation and into this world he did not break the sabbath commandment he fulfilled it he reoriented everyone back to what god had intended it to be all along a gift to the weary a day of healing a day to fellowship with god himself remembering his provision and his redemption we see that in jesus as he ministered throughout jerusalem throughout the the nation of israel What was he doing that he was always getting in trouble with for? He was healing. He was bringing God to the people. He was fellowshipping with them. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one to whom the Sabbath pointed. He is the place of ultimate rest for the people of God. The Sabbath is promising an even greater redemption and a greater rest than what God had done for Israel. Like Israel, we too are born into the house of slavery. We are working endlessly to get from underneath, get out from underneath the weight of our sin, out from underneath our shame, get out from underneath the condemnation of the law. This law that we have spent so much time looking at this week, and we'll be looking at even more next week, is a heavy weight of condemnation. Is it not? It's a heavy weight of condemnation on our shoulders if we are quite honest, because this law demands perfection, perfect obedience. And as we have gone through just the first four commandments, we have seen, if we are honest, that we fall very short of that. And we feel the weight of that law on us. We feel the weight of our sinfulness. We feel the weight of that. We are all under condemnation of the penalty of breaking God's perfect, beautiful, good law. And just like Israel was crushed under the weight of Pharaoh's demands, we are crushed under the weight of the law. But there's a huge difference because God is not like Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave them nothing to help them, just made it harder and harder and harder. Bricks without straw and without tools. It was impossible for them to do what was expected. But it's impossible for us to obey the law too. But God gives us everything we need in Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. We can experience true spiritual rest Soul rest with God because Jesus was crushed in our place. Because God did not hold him guiltless, we can stand guilt-free. We have broken God's law every day of our lives. We will continue to do that until we meet him face-to-face. And yet, because Jesus was crushed under the penalty, we can stand forgiven, free, without guilt, without shame, anymore because of Jesus. We come to Jesus by faith. When we put our trust in him, we are entering into the true soul rest and fellowship with God our King. Jesus fulfilled the fourth commandment and he has transformed it for us today. And we get to celebrate and observe the Sabbath rest that we have in him as we gather together on the first day of the week to worship the Lord Jesus as our God in the midst of a community of believers. So in conclusion... For those of us who are believers today, who have by faith trusted in Jesus' righteousness, the law is no longer crushing to us. We can hear the demands of the law, and we can recognize how far we fall short of it, and we can know that Jesus paid it all, and that we are forgiven and free. The law no longer crushes us. It is transformed because of Jesus To us, It is transformed from being something that crushes us to something that is now a delight to us. Listen to what the prophet said. Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel said almost the same thing when he said, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be my, their God. These prophets are pointing to the time when Jesus would come, to the work that Jesus would do, and what is going to happen in the new covenant that was purchased by the blood of Jesus this is what God does in the life of those who put their faith and trust in them. He gives them a new heart. And instead of writing on the tablets of stone, he now takes those ten words and writes them on our heart. They no longer are crushing to us, but now they become the delight of our heart, the desire of our heart. This is how Jesus can transform the law in the lives of believers. And then not only that, does not only does he write it on our hearts, but he puts his spirit within us. And the Spirit of God causes us to walk in obedience to the word of God. We cannot obey the commands of God in our own flesh by just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and promising to do better better. But we can if we walk according to the Spirit. He has given us everything we need, He's given us Jesus, His Son our Savior, our Messiah, our righteousness, our forgiveness. He's given us a new heart. He's written his law in our heart. He's put his spirit within us. And this is the new covenant that Jesus brought us by his broken body and by his shed blood. He's given us these new hearts that love God's law and now desire to obey it. Hearts that cry out with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day hearts that desire to obey and walk in his commands, hearts that love and desire to worship God alone in spirit and in truth, hearts that revere the name of our God, hearts that walk in his ways and keep his statutes, and hearts that have rest and true fellowship in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious and generous God, and that your commands lead us to life and to blessing and to freedom. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to walk in your ways. I pray that we would honor you, worship you, love you, obey you with all of our words and with our deeds. And I pray this in the powerful and precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.